Hello and welcome to the Badges podcast, brought to you by the British Association for Japanese Studies. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, MA in Cultural Heritage and Museum Studies and Specialist in Language and Japanese War Heritage. In this episode, I'm joined by Taimen Screech, Professor at the International Research Center for Japanese Studies in Kyoto, otherwise known as Nichibunken, to discuss the first interactions between England and Japan at the start of the 17th century. Tim shares with us. Tim shares with us the political factors which drove England to find trading partners halfway around the world, the challenges in winning the shogun's ear, and the statements made in the gifts they brought, such as the title item of Tim's recent book, The Shogun's Silver Telescope. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay. Good evening, Tim. Thank you for joining me on the Badgers podcast today. It's a pleasure. So let's start off with uh, introductions. Tell us about how you started off in Japanese studies and what your research areas are. Well, I started in Japanese studies a very long time ago. My BA was in Japanese, and of course, a lot of it was to do with language. But uh, at that point, I began reading classical literature, in other words, anything before the mid-19th century, and I really got hooked on that. So I always knew I wanted to do early Japanese things. Uh, and then some of your older listeners who've been in London a long time or were, were in London in the past may remember the Royal Academy had an amazing exhibition called the Great Japan Exhibition. And I think it was in 1982. And I saw that as an undergraduate student. And then I realized it was Japanese early modern art that I wanted to do. And in and, and, and those days, such a subject wasn't taught anywhere in, in the UK. In fact, it wasn't really taught anywhere in, in Europe. And so I went and did my PhD in the States. And I was extraordinarily lucky that just as I finished my PhD in 1991, SOAS created a post in Japanese art. And, and I grabbed it and I was there for exactly 30 years until last summer when I left. But that hasn't quite answered your question about how I got into it. <laughs> There's two reasons, I suppose. One is that my father had been in the occupation army of Japan. And of the generation a little bit older than me, uh, many very distinguished Japanese studies people had themselves been in the occupation, mostly US people, but some British and some Australian. Uh, I was too young by long chalk to have done it, but my father did it and he came back with many stories of Japan and uh, he learnt pretty good spoken Japanese at the time, um, never took it further. But as a child, I heard about Japan. And the sort of second strand of that was that uh, when I was beginning my studies so long ago in the uh, early 1980s, it was the moment when suddenly Japan was entering everyone's consciousness. We were all buying Japanese stuff, talking about Japanese businesses. They were buying things. There was a kind of fear almost about Japanese economic prowess. But of course, there were hardly any um, people in the West and certainly very few in Britain that spoke or read Japanese. So people said to me, you know, go for it, do, do it. You'll have a fantastic um, career at the end of it. You'll do whatever you want. And in fact, all my contemporaries, who were not numerous, but all of them went into various kinds of financial work and did exceedingly well. And uh, I stayed in academia and had a rather, rather different sort of life. Wow, what a fascinating beginning. So your research covers a wide span of Japan's history, but uh, today we'll be focusing on when the first English ships arrived in Japan to establish factories for trade with the Tokugawa shogunate at the start of the 17th century. Help me paint a picture. Uh, a number of ships arrive at Nagasaki off the western coast of Japan after a year-long voyage. 
Why in this early era of treacherous sea travel were English ships seeking trade partners on the other side of the world? That's a, a very good question. I, I asked myself many times in the process of doing the book, um, given what they put themselves through. But of course, Europe has always had this fascination, things from Asia. I mean, even the Bible, there are these, you know, Queen of Sheba and Asia got further and further away and people thought about Cathay and things. So that the idea of getting Asian things had been always a desire. Marco Polo had talked about the uh, islands of gold. But more practically, Asian things were bought on the whole in Venice. Spices, uh, silks, pepper, a little bit of um, ivory. And then it occurred to people, of course, if you go nearer to the um, land of production, you'll get it cheaper. So people sailed on to Aleppo and Istanbul. Um, and that's the end of the line if you're using the Mediterranean. But of course, the Portuguese had already discovered you can go around Africa and get to, um, well, India initially, but all the way through to around the area of modern Singapore. Meanwhile, the Spanish had gone around the other way, going overland across New Spain, now called Mexico, and they had occupied the Philippines. So both the Spanish and the Portuguese have uh, important chunks. Of course, it's almost impossible for the British or the Dutch to go via Mexico, they, uh, they would never be allowed across land by their enemies. They could just about think of going all the way down to Chile and through Terra del Fuego, but very, very dangerous route. So they went as far as Java, which the Portuguese couldn't really stop them sailing across the wide, wide Pacific. Uh, and then they were stuck. So they bought their spices there. But it was a Dutch traveler who'd worked with the Portuguese who alerted both his fellow countrymen and the English, that you could get beyond Java through to the China Seas. Because if you look at a map, you'll see the obvious way through is to go down the long straits of Malacca past Singapore. That's what the Portuguese had done, and the Portuguese had already got on to uh, Japan. But of course, the Portuguese would not let the English or the Dutch th through, so they were stuck. Um, but the Dutch thanks to this Dutchman who'd worked with the Portuguese, who knew their secrets, was that there was one other little sliver of a strait through from the Indian Ocean to the China Seas. And the English and the Dutch bolted down there, made friends with the local sultan, and got themselves access to that second only route. And it's incredible if you think about it, that all the trade between Asia and Europe, and even to this day, this is why the Chinese um, are going with their uh, road and uh, Belt and Road project to find a way to get through from the China Seas to the uh, Indian Ocean and the Pacific without going through these tiny little straits of Malacca or the English in the Dutch one called the Straits of Sunda between Java and Sumatra. So it's a long story. I'm sorry. It took them many years to figure this out. But eventually the Dutch and the English are ensconced there. They have decent trading relations. They can buy all the spices they want without going for the Portuguese on Java. But then they say, well, let's go through the Straits and let's go on. And it wasn't until 1611 that the English sent the first ship with the intention, they don't know it'll make it, but with the intention of going through to the Spice Islands, uh, which a couple of ships had already done, buying pepper and you know, buying um, nutmeg and, uh, and, and mace, but then going all the way on up to Japan. It meant skirting the Philippines, 
uh, which belonged to Spain. But by that point, uh, there was peace. So, so long as the English didn't attempt to land on the so-called Spanish property, then they would be allowed through. And the first English ship, just one, finally arrives in 1613. Dutch were already there, only a couple of ships had ever made it, but there were a couple of Dutch had got there. And of course, the Portuguese were there in some numbers, not so many Spanish uh, for kind of internal Iberian reasons. We probably haven't got time to go into it today, but the Spanish on the whole didn't um, involve themselves too much with Japan at this point. They had, after all, the Philippines and Mexico. And as you said, the English went to Nagasaki. It's the obvious port. Again, if you look at a map, sailing up from Southeast Asia, Nagasaki is where you would hit. But a ship sailed out from Nagasaki port to greet the English arrival. And they said, um, you do realize that this city is under the control of the Roman Catholic Church. And we don't want people like you here. So the English sailed on and they found a rather northern port further on, not very much further on, where the Dutch had also set up already because they couldn't use Nagasaki either. And then the English and the Dutch both had these so-called factories, meaning tra trading stations in Japan from 1609 in the Dutch case and 1613 in the English case. I see. And it's important to note, I think, the Catholic-Protestant divide. is that's, that's a huge reason why England is seeking partners so far from Europe at the time, isn't it? Yes. The, by the time um, King James I, um, 1605, create the, there's the Treaty of London between the English and the Spanish, who, of course, have had the Spanish Armada and so much bloodshed. Uh, it allows the English to trade to places which the Spanish and the Portuguese do not themselves already claim. And they claimed the Philippines and they claimed Mexico and they'd claimed Malacca, uh, but they'd never had the temerity to claim Japan. So the English and the Dutch are, as it were, entitled to trade with the Japan. And, and, and although the Spanish and the Portuguese, especially the Portuguese, don't appreciate the English arrival, they know that legally they can't stop them. Of course, both sides badmouth each other, try to get the shogun to um, think the other people are pirates and brigands and untrustworthy. But all three nations, and when the Spanish get involved, all four nations remain trading in Japan for a certain period in, in the second, third decades of the 17th century. Thank you for that, for that summary. Now, our representatives of the East India Company are ashore in Japan. How do they begin in yes. establishing contacts with the shogun, and what exactly do they expect to get from him? Well, what everyone wanted from Japan was one product, and that was silver. The, of course, Japan has no silver left, and it's funny to think all the way back. In Japan, silver was completely depleted because everyone went there trying to get it. But the two parts of the world that have really yielded large quantities of silver have been the Spanish possessions in, well, think of the name Argentina, land of silver. The mines were not all in modern-day Argentina, but that produced a lot of silver, which, of course, the Spanish had. And the people who can't get it easily from the Spanish want to get it somewhere else, and that somewhere else pretty much has to be Japan. As long as the English and the Spanish were at war, the likes of Francis Drake went off and um, attacked what they called plate ships, right? ships bringing plata, bringing silver from the new Spanish colonies of Latin America back to England, but after, pre after just back to Spain. But after peace, they can't do that. So this is why it's just in the beginning of the 17th century after the peace that the English can't blag Spanish silver anymore. They have to go and buy some. So that's what they go for. But of course, they have to buy it with something. They're not intending in any way to attack and steal from the Japanese. They 
do that in other places, but the Japanese have a reputation, rightly, for being very strong. They'll have to trade. So what they will do is trade England's one and only internationally recognized consumer product of the period, which was woolen cloth. And still, of course, the English dress in wool and tweed jackets and uh, and even in the past, trousers and so on, everything was wool. So the English have a very high reputation in many parts of the world already for their wool. And indeed, the the Dutch have been bringing in, the Spanish, the Portuguese have been bringing English wool to sell to uh, the Japanese already. Lots of English wool is, for example, the Iranian army was dressed in English wool. It wasn't an absurd idea to take the wool in itself. And they also hear that Japan has no sheep, which is true. So Japan can't produce its own wool and Japan has cold winters. And I'm shivering here in Kyoto at present in a cold Japanese winter. So uh, it seems like it's going to be a very good thing. Send the Japanese wool and buy it with silver. And then much of the silver can be brought back to England for all the purposes it's needed for. But also some of that silver can be used to buy spices in Southeast Asia, where the suppliers have been accustomed to selling for silver because they've been doing that with the Portuguese. So it all seems like a really clever and brilliant idea. But it's premised on two ideas, both of which unfortunately turn out to be incorrect. We're talking about wooden ships and inevitably they leak and it's a very long and in some parts a very sultry voyage. And taking wool is going to be very difficult. Essentially, it'll go musty or rot along the way, which makes it unsaleable. So the English are aware that it's not going to be easy to do this, but they have hope, which is that you should be able to sail over the north coast of Russia. And at the same time, their exploration is going to Southeast Asia and then eventually to Japan. There are also sailings going over the top of Russia and the so-called Northwest passage over the top of Canada or through Hudson Bay, which they think will lead out to the other side. That's more famous because we know the story um, for the Americas. But more effort was put into the uh, northeast passage going over Russia because Russia was an English ally and uh, a long way, a long part of the way they would have access to Russian uh, supplies and, and ports and things. So they think they can do it. If you could sail over the top of London to Japan via Russia, they're pretty sure it'll only take maybe six weeks compared with, as you said, a year at least going the other way. And um, this had been the calculation from the start. Now, we know, of course, those northern seas are frozen. You can't do it, which they discovered in due course. The other thing they never discovered that we know is that Siberia exists. So even if you could sail over the top of Russia, it's actually not that much quicker than going all the way around. So idea number one, eventually they realize it doesn't work. And that's a reason why the English don't remain trading in Japan for very long. The second failure is that it's true the Japanese have cold winters and they have no sheep. But of course, the Japanese had devised their own winter clothes. It wasn't as if they were shivering and waiting for the English to turn up with wool. And so when the English, even the wool that arrives in good state and they can sell it, the Japanese say, well, you know, we actually have very nice winter clothes. It's probably even better. And before you know what happens, the English start not wearing their own wool and wearing Japanese winter clothes, which they prefer. And the Japanese say, well, you're not even wearing it yourselves. How do you think we're going to buy it? But we'll buy some for covering weapons, right? Swords and muskets, they need to be wrapped up in something. And English wool was very good for that kind of thing. But of course, they're not going to sell a huge bulk that way. Um, and 
and it, it, it all kind of came to naught. So the English have no trade item to sell in Japan, and that is their big problem. Now, the Dutch have no trade item to sell in Japan either, but the Dutch have been rather more organized in buying things along the way. So there's plenty of things you buy between London or Amsterdam and Japan that the Japanese will buy, of course, partly spices, although Japanese food is not that spicy. But, for example, um, cottons from India, batiks from Southeast Asia, those things would sell in very good quantities. And indeed, insofar as the English and the Dutch trading stations ever work, they work by selling um, South Asian and Southeast Asian things to Japan. Wasn't there also an understanding or a hope that uh, Japan might sell the same sort of quality of silks that were currently coming out of China at the time? Yes, Japanese silk has never been of the quality of Chinese and it's much less, therefore it's more expensive. So silk, I mean, if they, you know, if they can get it, they will, they will try. Uh, more than talking about silk, there are some comments about porcelain. But actually, Japanese porcelain making is usually dated to around about the year 1610, 1612. So, in fact, when the English sail out and heading for Japan, Japan doesn't even make porcelain. And indeed, one thing English send to Japan, because if you're sending a ship of wool, you also need some heavy ballast. So they actually send lots of English Delft West ceramics to Japan. These were all made in Southwark. And when I was living in London, I happened to live um, in, the, in the borough uh, Elephant and Castle area, and that was all ceramic making. And some of the end, in fact, when one of the shogun's graves was blown open in the Second World War, what should pop out of it? But some English early 17th century ceramics, which he'd obviously liked. So that worked okay. But again, it wasn't a volume product. So uh, a little bit of silk, a little bit of ceramics, but on the whole, at that time, English ceramics were equally good. And the third thing that they do want to buy, and they are aware of, is a lacquer. And Japanese lacquer was very highly regarded already. The great nobles of Spain and, 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 uh, and Naples uh, had Japanese lacquer. The problem with lacquer is that it's um, a luxury product in Japan, too. So you can sell it for a lot of money, but you have to also buy it for a lot of money. The markup is not that good. And lacquer also, you know, trunks and chests and things, they take up an awful lot of space on board ships. So in the end, lacquer worked pretty well for elite gift, gifts and bribes and king you know king james gets them stuff like that but but not much trade in lacquer is done so our english merchants have now arrived at the shogun's court who are their competitors yes and how do they plan to woo the shogun into favoring them yes well this of course is their big problem because there's already spanish and dutch trading pretty successfully in japan and why exactly would the japanese want to transfer and break up the networks that they've already established in favor of some other country that they've never even heard of. But they had one colossal advantage, and it was the only reason, really, the Jap English um, trading station worked as well as it did, which was that by complete chance, the first Dutch ship that arrived in Japan, before even the Dutch had begun trading officially, it's a ship that blew off course, well, it was trying to get to Japan, it kind of blew on course, I suppose, arrived in Japan half a wreck, the pilot was English. His name was William Adams. He came from Kent, and he'd also trained in Limehouse outside London. He was a very experienced mariner, and he'd managed to bring this Dutch ship all the way to Japan, going southern route past 
Chile, which everyone thought was completely suicidal. And in fact, most of the sailors died, but it got there. So Adams arrived in Japan on that first ship in exactly the year 1600. The English arrived in Japan in 1613. So he's been there for a, a dozen years, or 12 years, dozen years. Uh, he's managed to get a couple of letters home to his wife in England and, and uh, the Dutch kind of like you know, steam open his lessons and make sure he's not encouraging the English to come and compete with them, etc. But in the, anyway, one of his letters does get home and it says, do come because the Japanese will very much be interested in, in English trade. Uh, so it's in the knowledge, although they're a bit dubious, right? They've heard rumors about this English person. Now, they may, be all be, may all be untrue. But anyway, they go in the full expectation that William Adams will help them. And he does. He, he, he had been under contract to the Dutch, of course, but that's long expired by the time the English arrive. He may have had a certain amount of um, fondness for his own country, although he lived in Holland. He was kind of probably considered himself as much Dutch as English at that point. But he um, agreed to assist the English and he even became a salaried employee of the English East India Company, much to the chagrin of the Dutch, or they couldn't stop him because his contract with them had run out. But Adams had not only been living in Japan for 12 years and had learnt pretty good Japanese, he'd become friends with the retired shogun. And this is quite a stunning thing, right? The, the shogun, um, of course, one of the most powerful people in the world, had attained the title of shogun um, in 1603. And he had ousted the last ones, the last, last, last ones had died. They've been previous shogunates in Japan, but the last lot had sort of fizzled out and been killed. So he becomes the first shogun of a new dynasty. He fully intends his children to continue, and it's going to be a new lineage, which he did. They lasted for 250 years. Um, but while he's setting up and he's unsure about things, um, this strange ship with William Adams as, pirate comes in, uh, as pilot comes in from Holland, and the Jesuits say, oh, you know, the Portuguese priests all say, oh, you know, the English, they're, they, um, they're, they're pirates, they're bullies, they're, um, they're, they're, they're heretics, don't trust them. But he, the, the, the shogun listens to uh, Adams and appears to be very impressed with what he hears and takes Adams on as a kind of advisor. And it may be partly Adams had extraordinary skills and um, credibility, but also he was neither Dutch nor Portuguese. And that probably made the Ashogun consider him to be somebody of um, independent opinion about things. He could be trusted as not following some party line. So it's William Adams who takes the English from the port where they've arrived quite distant up to the, at this point, retired Shogun's mansion, his retirement castle, and they meet and they have permission to trade, but he's retired. So he says, you must go on to my son, who's now ruling as the as the um, Deyuri shogun, who lives in the city called Edo, which is modern day Tokyo. And so the English go on there and do their greetings and give presents, etc. And so both the shogun, who's a bit of under his father's thumb, and the powerful father have endorsed English trade. Uh, the permission to trade is taken back to uh, England and it arrives safely at the end of 1614, so three years after the ship left. Uh, and, and that begins the, um, the English trade with Japan. 
When I was a history undergraduate, I, I had the pleasure of reading the, the diaries of John Saris, who is the, uh, the captain of the first English ships sent by the, by the East, East India Company to Japan, uh, and who was uh, tasked with meeting with William, William Adams and uh, making, taking advantage of this relationship. And I was quite amused by how um, sceptical and wary they were of him because they thought that he had gone native, as it were, that he was wearing their clothes, he was speaking their language, and uh, they, they were questioning whether he was now uh, on the Japanese side and whether he could be trusted as an Englishman. Could you flesh that image out for us a bit more? Yes, I mean, and so Saris, as you um, correctly say, was the commander, really, right? I mean, there's obviously the ship's master who knows about sailing, but Saris was in charge of the whole venture. He'd already lived in the English trading station on Java for many years. And so he knew a bit about Asia. He would have certainly met Japanese people when he was on Java. But of course, he knew nothing about um, Japan whatsoever. So he was very reliant on Adams. And that you can imagine as the interhuman relationships were going to be very problematic because Saris is in charge. He has a commission uh, from the East India Company operating in the name of, of the king. He's a pretty important person, but he's entirely dependent on this uh, man from Kent who just happens to have turned up there. And, and of course, they rapidly become rather suspicious, suspicious of each other. Cyrus has gone down in history as, you know, Cantankerous and Adams is a kind of hero, but it may not be as easy as that. But at any rate, um, they have a decent enough working relationship and uh, Saris leaves the country to bring the shogun's permission to trade back to London. He doesn't stay there very long, but he leaves another Englishman to run the venture whose name is um, Richard Cox, who remained in Japan head of the English business for 10 whole years. And he has also an extremely interesting diary, although sadly it's not available in a modern day, easy to purchase paperback edition, but he leaves many interesting comments about not just trade, but life in Japan at the period. And he and Adams also had uh, quite a bit of, of, of friction with each other. But it was thanks to Adams um, that anything really uh, happened at all. So speaking of, of life in Japan at this time, after being granted the right to trade, a factory was established on the island of Hirado, north of Nagasaki, where a number of representatives are permanently based for about 10 years. What kind of life do these merchants live so far from home? Uh, we have a lot of letters. Uh, only person, the only person that left a decent diary was Richard Cox. Uh, and unfortunately, his diary is lost for the first several years of the time that he was there. But Cox was a very intelligent person. He was a trained uh, wool merchant. He'd lived in France for a long period when he'd done that. And he, every now and again, he jots down in his diary what he was reading. And he was reading, you know, the serious intellectual books of the period. He couldn't get them that easily in Japan, I suppose he brought them with him. So Cox was a person of uh, of an active mind, and that's and that's very visible in the way that he records things. You know, he, he went to temples, he leaves long descriptions of Japanese temples, which in many cases the temple today is gone. It's the only description of it that we even have. You know, Japanese people, for them it was normal. They didn't write down what they saw. Right? He uh, he writes about food. He um, he said he was competent to write letters in Japanese by the time he was, you know, he'd been there a few few years. But their trading station in Hirado, as you say, right down by the port, is quite far away. But every time a new ship arrived, it wasn't that frequent, maybe one a year, uh, then the commander of the ship would go and pay respects to the shogun and his father. 
So that would be like a long trip across the country. It would take them, um, you know, at least a month to get there and to come back. So the people that were on that trip would have quite an exciting experience. Cox himself, not being a commander, didn't get to do it very often. But he did a couple of times go through Kyoto. He left interesting comments about the life and architecture of Kyoto. But one thing that they did get permission for from the ex-shogun was not just to trade down there on the port. That's going to be their base. But they're allowed to open substations in other Japanese cities. So Edo, modern day Tokyo, Osaka, still called Osaka, and Miyako, now called Kyoto. Uh, these three, and in fact, one other important port near Osaka, there were four English sub trading stations. Uh, and the people who lived in those, were, of course, were living in four of the most um, exciting cities in the, in the world at the time. None of them kept diaries, which is very frustrating, but they did send each other letters. So we have information, you know, they got to having Japanese star baths. They 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 ate Japanese food. They, of course, almost all had Japanese um, common law wives or, you know, girlfriends, whatever one wants to call them. Some of them uh, expressed interest in uh, Japanese literature. I mean, they couldn't read much. But, for example, Cox collected Japanese books uh, and pictures uh, brought some home with him when he eventually left or he died at sea, sadly. Uh, so, you know, these are merchants. They, of course, they weren't going into this because they were interested in Japanese studies, um, but they were alert to the differences of the culture that they were um, visiting. And, um, you know, they, after all, they, as young men, they decided to go out and see the world. And uh, that's uh, what they ended up being able to do. I suspect that life in Japan was much, much preferable to some of the other trading stations. It was fairly disease free. The climate is sometimes cold, sometimes hot, but it's not like trying to um, live your life in, uh, you know, around the Singapore area, which is very, very hard without air conditioning. So they had a, um, a pretty good time of it, I think. Uh, of all the ones who went through life in the English trading station in Japan, only um, two of them ever decided to relocate back permanently to England. So that might tell you that they kind of enjoyed where they were. And uh, some of them died, of course, but, but all, the, all the others decided to stay in Asia and, um, and uh, uh, um, not go home again. See, yeah, I've definitely read some quite harrowing reports of uh, factories in Java with constant fear of arson and thievery, <laughs> which... Um... That's right. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, I mean, um, there, there was a, a strong religious issue that, that um, these were all Muslim states. Uh, although they weren't, of course, remotely um, so serious-minded in the Muslims as some countries are today. So in other words, they drank alcohol and they made pictures and stuff. But but still, yeah, of course, there was a religious distinction. And uh, those parts of the world were extremely dangerous for people who weren't immune to them uh, through birth and, and hereditary. So they dry all they have. This, they call it the flux. It's a disease they don't know how to explain it probably was a whole range of tropical diseases linked to dysentery and dehydration and things and many many people died uh, europeans died if they spent a long time in um, on java yes yeah there's also the rule of law i think it was quite unusual and i think they were they were quite relieved that uh, the samurai ruled with quite a harsh hand that seemed to keep a, a fearful peace as it were which was wasn't seen in, in other factories that, that's very likely that the um, Japan had had atrocious civil wars through the entire 16th century. And it hadn't been helped by the fact the Portuguese turned up and started selling guns to people. But 
this first Jogun um, had effectively brought peace. And of course, you bring peace with the sword, right? So he'd introduced a very forceful regime that had brought peace. And on the whole, people at that time were so grateful that stability had come back, they tolerated a fairly oppressive government um, entity. Uh, as the decades and even centuries wore on, people became less willing to accept that. And you get much more in the way of peasant uprisings and you know, objections to samurai rule. But in the early 17th century, the Japanese population of the whole is just overwhelmingly grateful that peace has come. So indeed, rule of law is back. The peasantry has been disarmed. One of the things the shoguns did is uh, um, divide off those who have the right to carry arms from those who don't and the ones who did have the right to carry arms. We use this word samurai, which is actually not a word they used at the time. But so all these stories we hear about the samurai uh, they are really the ones who are in charge of maintaining peace, right? They didn't go around cutting people's heads off because civil war has ended finally. Um, of course, what um, the the rule of law might have meant to somebody from Elizabethan Jacobi in England is rather different from us today, right? There's lords going around abusing everyone and stuff. So it was probably Japan was was better regulated uh, and a more le- on a more, on a secure legal footing, likely than than, than England was at the time. So ultimately, the East India Company closed their factory in 1623, a relatively short-lived tenure yes. for the East India Company outpost. Uh, what were the reasons behind this closure, and what did it mean for merchants who had started families with Japanese locals? So the, the East India Company had been sort of deciding to pull out for a few years beforehand, and Richard Cox, running the business, had received a few letters already saying, you know, I think we sh- you should come home. Things aren't going very well. Trade with with the, in the spices is absolutely great, but you know it's a it's a really long way to go from Java up to Japan, and and just for the sake of um, trying to sell some wool, which the Japanese don't really want, and it turns out that buying Japanese silver was not that different from buying it from the Spanish, who we're, we're at peace with now, and just go and buy it in Seville, and it's much easier, right? So, so the whole thing is, you know, it, it's it kind of like. Someone suddenly says, like, what's the point? And it makes me think a little bit about, um, sometimes I say students, in the days when you know, jet um, flights were just beginning and every nation in the world felt it had to have a, a, a national flag carrier as a kind of status symbol. And for a little while, you know, the big countries all want to have an East India company. But after a while, you say, like, why are we doing this? Um, well, we can buy what we want in Istanbul or in um, Venice or even in um, Amsterdam. Uh, and the few things we want, spices, we can buy those ourselves in Java. And so they just say, like, enough already. They also realize you can't get over the top of Russia. Also, there's a change of uh, control in Japan, which is the old shogun who had welcomed the English, who'd gone into retirement, died. And his son, who finally gets out from under his father's thumb, has a much more um, anti uh, he's not so interested in international diplomacy, not just the English, he cuts off connections with um, Spain. Uh, and Portugal as well. Uh, And the third factor, I suppose, or this kicks in rather later on, is the English Civil War makes it difficult for raising of capital. And then at the end of the English Civil War, there is the return of the monarchy, and the King of England uh, marries the Princess of Portugal, right, Catherine of Braganza. And Catherine of Braganza brings us her dowry, um, what they called then Bombay, Mumbai. So frankly, if you've got Mumbai, um, why on earth are you going to 
sail all the way to Japan, just um, in the vain hope of um, getting silver, which you can get elsewhere, and selling wool, which um, it's become apparent uh, there's no real market for it. So uh, it's just a, um, a set. It's not a, it's not a huge failure. I mean, they learned things by what they did, but the sphere of interest of Easting of in, in English trade uh, and of the whole East India Company's um, uh, uh, um, uh, onslaughts, I suppose it is, onto local markets turns, for better or worse, probably for worse, to to India. And um, so, from, from the, the diaries that I've I've read, it seems that um, a fair number of the merchants who uh, had started families in Japan brought them back home to, with them to England when they were told to to come back. Uh, have you read about, about that at all? Um, well, a lot of the you know the kind of human relations side of things doesn't get recorded. the The archive is pretty well preserved, but there certainly are many many letters that have been lost. And the sort of official letters sent back to the East India Company in London telling them things how, how things are going on. Obviously, they don't mention girlfriends. But Richard Cox had a child or two in Japan, acknowledged. He may have had something he didn't acknowledge. Them. They were simply left when he came back. You know, no doubt they didn't speak much English. And, you know, I mean, it was probably a sensible decision subjecting them to such a long trip. And why? You know, I mean, they, they, OK, they can be with their father, but it means they're not going to be with their mother just for the sake of living in England, which isn't necessarily a better option than living in Japan. You know, I, I say that somebody's decided to relocate to Japan. So it's not obvious why you would want to come back to England if you had the option of staying in Japan. Um, but but a couple of them, in fact, as far as I know, um, only one mixed race child returned to England. One youth who had been sent to Japan as a child, but he was entirely English and who became effectively bicultural, uh, he did briefly returned to him. His name was Henry Hudson. His father was Hudson, founder of Hudson Bay. Uh, I would discover the name of Hudson Bay. Um, but Henry Hudson spent a little bit of time back in England, but he decided to return to India, and that's where he died. The one and only uh, mixed-race child that came back uh, was called um, William Eaton. So he had an English name. His father was also called William Eaton, which makes it confusing. And they set up home in Highbury, today part of London, but in those days a rather nice salubrious village in the hills outside. And the one only documentation that survives about um, William um, Eaton the Younger is a petition for a scholarship from Cambridge University, which in those days scholarships were in the king's gift. So a letter is from him to the king saying, um, you know, he's studying at, at Trinity College, Cambridge, actually, still, of course, one of the wealthiest and best off ones there. And he says, I was born in the, born in the furthest um, part of the Indies uh, and I need to do more. I want to do more study. We don't know the result of that request. I haven't done it personally, but other people have asked uh, Trinity College Cambridge if there's any documentation about him. And apparently there isn't any. But then um, William Eaton is not such an unusual name. Uh, it could be that he's he's there somewhere lurking in the paperwork. It could also, of course, be that. Um, he died. But many Cambridge students would have become um, ministers of religion, Church of England priests. So um, some person could try doing this if they haven't already done so, looking through all the records of early English, um, early 70th century English ecclesiastical livings and seeing by any chance if someone by the name of William Eaton, that's Eaton, he usually spelled it with an A, E-A-T-O-N, but of course they didn't have regularized spelling uh, turns up in in the records and, and and that as far as I know is the is the only one a few people took their Japanese mixed-race children 
um, to other Asian places. Uh, some several people, when the ship's bringing people home to to London after they closed down, down the English factory, uh, the ship stops obviously in several places along the way, and some people decide to get out and 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 remain there. But certainly there isn't a sort of mixed race um, ongoing presence in London as a result of the um, the English experiences in Japan. Certainly not a mass migration at any rate. <laughs> not at all a mass migration. No, a few Japanese came over um, as sailors uh, when the English, of course, sailors die at a horrific rate on the way over and you certainly need a certain manpower. So that, that very first ship that um, took the request and brought back permission to trade returned to England with, um, I think I'm right in saying, 12 or 15 Japanese people on it. They lived in somewhere in London for a number of months, but then they took the next ship back again, so they didn't have any um, permanent legacy. Well, thank you for answering all my questions so far, Tim. I'd just like to finish off, because we're obviously talking about your book, The Shogun's Silver Telescope. Could you explain a bit more about this title item that you refer to? Well, I was hoping you were going to ask me about that, and I didn't want to be too pushy about my book. But when the English go out and they need to, um, you know, they know that there's going to be a ruler in Japan somewhere. They, they, they know there's this person called William Adams who hopefully can introduce them. They have high hopes for what their trade can be, and they need to take a special present. And um, they take a silver gilt telescope. So my title of my book says The Silver Telescope. And uh, actually, it was made of silver, but it then had um, gold foil on it. So you can't make a telescope out of gold because it will be gold soft. And you, if you leave it as silver, it will tarnish. So quite frequently, silver things were then gilt. Anyway, the English described that's how it looked. It must have been a magnificent thing to see. And the Japanese side record the dimensions of it, which the English side doesn't do. It was about three meters long. So, I mean... Telescopes in those days did tend to be quite big, but this is a, um, a, a colossal thing, way bigger than, you know, I mean, Galileo had just a kind of wooden tube with lenses in it. So this is the first case of a documented telescope made as a royal presentation item, a beautiful thing. right? And the Japanese record says it arrived. We know the Shogun received it. Regrettably, it doesn't survive to this day. Well, it's not so surprising because it would have been outclassed by subsequent generations of telescope. And people probably thought, why keep an old one when um, a new, better one's been imported? So it doesn't exist. Maybe it was even melted down for the, for the metal, or maybe it was broken. It would have been quite delicate. But um, it was given, and it probably helped the lubrication of early English trade. Now, why the English sent a telescope and what a telescope could possibly have meant was the purpose of my book. And um, my book is quite honest about it. The truth of the matter is we don't know. Although the East India Company records are quite um, comprehensive, uh, they are missing for exactly the six months before that ship sailed, which is so annoying. That's where the discussions would have been. Furthermore, the gift was sent not in the name of the East India Company, but in the name of the King of England, King James. And therefore, there ought to be some records within the government papers but the fire of Whitehall that happened later in the 17th century um, lost most of those papers. So the Privy Council minutes and things are completely missing from that period. So in the absence of any hard and fast documentation, and yet given this extraordinary fact that a telescope was sent and was received, I set myself the task of trying to figure out what it meant. And, you know, I'm ready that people will say um, there's a different interpretation. I, I, I don't have facts to 
prove it. But I did, in the course of that book, put together, I think, a large amount of period information data about what telescopes meant and what they did. And um, and I hope people reading it will find it convincing. Obviously, it was the latest astronomical tool. Um, Galileo's findings were only published you know, only months before the English sailed, which means that his fin findings must have been even nearer uh, when the telescope was was built. And the uh, James King James, well, the English consul in Venice, where um, Galileo, he, he, he was working in Padua, but he also um, he had connected Venice. The, 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 the English uh, consul in Venice was an extremely active person. And one of the first copies of Galileo's book ever came off the press was sent to England. And so they knew about it. Also, there is a theory, again, it's another theory, not quite provable, that the telescope had been invented in England. Normally, it's said to have been invented in Holland, but there's no evidence it was invented in Holland. The evidence we have for Holland is that it was a patent was applied for in Holland, but the patent was rejected on the grounds that it was not a new invention. So then they said, who did invent it? Then nobody can answer that question. But there is some suggestion that the English might have been involved. And the person who's most likely to have invented it in England, if indeed that happened, his son was one of the directors of the East India Company. So there seems to me there must be a nationalistic side to it too. There's a modern day scientific aspect to it too. And there's also another aspect which really kicks in a little bit after the English sent their telescope, but is in the air at the time, which of course is that the Roman Catholic Church uh, would take violent exception to Galileo's findings. The point is that the Bible very categorically and clearly says that the sun revolves around the earth. And amongst Galileo's many findings, many of his findings were not remotely controversial, theologically speaking, but that one was controversial. And so the church would eventually um, refuse Galileo's teachings. And therefore, a telescope in Japan sent by a Protestant country would be um, another way to kind of goad the Portuguese whose priests had been in Japan for half a century. I mean, the, the missions to Japan are opened in the in the 1550s, right? So that um, the, the, the Portuguese have been there for, 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 for 40 years. There are probably tens of thousands of Japanese Christians and uh, all, of, of course, who would be supporting the Spanish cause. And the English, with this telescope, um, can begin to propose something different. That's what my book says. I hope very much that some of your readers want to to, to follow the argument in in, in, in in more detail in the published version. Definitely. I'm sure we'll have many new readers after this episode. Thanks for taking the time to join me today, Tim. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us any other projects you're currently working on? Well, I'm now doing something a little different, which is that first Shogun who welcomed the English. I told you he died, his son took over. He died in 1616. And uh, on his, in fact, he, inter interesting enough, he died about 10 days um, after Shakespeare, by chance, obviously, but uh, he was deified. And so my current project is on the theological and, um, uh, well, theological background to why he was deified and what that means, but also the shrine in which he was deified um, survives, although somewhat rebuilt. So uh, it's also got a strong architectural historical and art historical angle. And my original background is in art history. So I'm very keen to have a large um, visual dimension to that project and uh, all going well. And I'm 
crossing my fingers and tapping the wooden desk as I say this, um, there may be a book um, to uh, appeal to your listeners in, in maybe a year or two from now. Excellent. So much look forward to then. Thank you, Tim. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.